it truly is such a joy to be in a fellowship with those of like precious faith and to get to come and, and be together and worship God and enjoy one another's company. I tell you, I, I think about that a lot and I appreciate the White Oak Church of Christ so much for allowing us to be a part of your family. I, uh, I want you to always remember that. And I may not always say it, but I always feel that way. And I appreciate being here with each of you. I look forward to it. Every week I look forward to seeing everyone on Wednesday. I look forward to seeing everyone on Sunday and Sunday evening. It is just a, a blessing to be able to be here. How will we meet the King? You know, I can remember as a young boy back in 1981, I was in school at Grimsley Elementary and then United States Senator Howard Baker and his daughter, Sissy, came for a visit. He was, I believe, in about his third term as the uh, senator from Tennessee, and she was making a bid for Congress and was going to uh, uh, have the election the following year, I believe. And I remember uh, school just kind of shut down. It just kind of shut down for their uh, coming to, to visit with us. We didn't have classes, courses, children. We loved that. We didn't want to sit in class anyway, and we certainly wanted to see the United States Senator. I don't remember a whole lot about the details of uh, their speeches that they talked to us about. I do remember that uh, Senator Baker went on to be the uh, chief of staff under uh, President Ronald Reagan. Sissy, however, she did not win her election bid for Congress, but uh, I still remember those things, and I've thought about that a lot over the years. And then I remember about three years ago, uh, the uh, each year the Big Orange Caravan would come to Memphis, and we would all go, uh, about four or five of us would go, and we'd see all the coaches, and we'd listen to them, and that would be the time of year we'd get all excited about the upcoming football season and the basketball season. And, and one year, I remember about three years ago, I was unable to uh, to attend that. And so one of my trips back home to visit my dad, I arranged it around the big orange caravan stopping in Franklin, Tennessee. And so I went to uh, uh, Franklin, Tennessee for the big orange caravan, and I was listening to uh, Coach Butch Jones, and I wanted to get my picture made with him. And the line was, uh, you could have wrapped it around this building, so I said, well, I'm going to eat, and then when the line kind of gets a little shorter, I'll go up there. Well, I waited until I thought the line was short enough, and I went up there, and the, and the man wouldn't let me in. He said, We've, right here is the last person no one else can come up. So I was just brokenhearted because I didn't get to see these people very often. I had to, do my, had to time my picture taking properly if I was going to be able to get the picture signed the next year. Well, as I was sitting there listening to his speech, he uh, began to talk a little bit, and I noticed he was standing right in front of a door that was behind him. Well, I was exactly to his left, and there was a door right behind me. And so I began to think, he's probably going to exit out that door. And so when he exited out his door, I jumped up and exited out of my door and ran all the way up the sidewalk and took my phone out, had a camera, and I said, Coach, I said, can I get a picture? I came all the way from Memphis to see you. And, uh, of course, being the coach of the Tennessee Vols, he, he's not going to say no, even though he probably wanted to get into the truck. Uh, it looked like the president caravan. Had all these men around him, and, the, and his bodyguard, I guess, stopped. Says, I, he said, uh, we're in a hurry. And I said, well, good, I am too, and handed him my phone. And so I got my arm around Coach Jones, and he took the picture, and the rest is history. But it is, it's fun to meet people like that, isn't it? 
It's fun to meet those that you enjoy in the sports world, and, and it's just fun to get to be around people like that, that you, that you admire in some way. But you know, there's going to be a meeting that we're all going to have one day. We're going to meet the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and, and we're going to have to stand before Him. And the question is, how are we going to meet Him? We understand that uh, He is the Creator of all things. And we understand that, that He's going to judge us. And we see that in Romans 14, 7 through 12. Paul said, For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. He said, Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. And that's the truth, isn't it? We are His creation. Whether we have been obedient to Him or not, we are still His creation. And we're going to stand before Him in judgment. And he goes on down to the final verse 12 and he says, we're going to give an account personally of our lives when we do meet Him. And so we need to have a desire to meet the King in the proper way, right? How would we meet the King? There's a story told of a young boy lived in the era of kings and castles and and he got to thinking one day that he wanted to meet the king of the land. And he knew about in what direction the castle was, so he set out one morning and he walked over valleys and dales and through fields and up one hill and down another hill and, and he walked all day long and then he came into sight of the castle. And he was thinking as he was going along, he said, I just want to meet the king. I want to go in and be in his presence. And I want to tell him how beautiful the land is and how happy I am to, to, to live where he is the king. Well, as he began to get closer, he uh, saw that as he walked up toward the castle, there were these guards all around it on the top of the walls. And they were armed and they looked like they were uh, not the nicest people in the world. And so he walked up to the to the uh, bridge, and he said, I want to come in and see the king. And they growled down at the boy and said, Get out of here! So the boy didn't have to be told twice. He turned around and he walked back into the forest. And he was broken hearted. He sat down and he was crying. Well, a few minutes later, this young man came walking by and he had a sack on his shoulder and he had been to the, to the market and he had bought some things. And he said, Son, what's wrong? And he told him, he said, I, want, I wanted to go see the king and... And he told him all the wonderful things he wanted to tell him about the kingdom and how happy he was. And he said, would you like, uh, would you like some juice? So he sat down and he got some juice out and they, they kept talking. He said, well, do you want to give it a, another try? He said, won't you come with me? Let's go try it. You came all this way. You walked all day long. So the boy thought for a moment and he said, well, he said, I don't, I don't want you to get into trouble or anything because he was scared he said well let's try it so he took him by the hand they began to walk back toward the castle and the closer they got the little boy and we've all held the hand of a child trying to get away from us and wanting to wanting to squeeze their little hand out of your hand and he's getting afraid and he's looking at that castle and he's thinking of those soldiers and he said mister he said you know i think this is far enough just i'll just be on my way he said you've come this far he said can't you trust me a little further and so they walked a little further and they, they came up to the, to the gates of the, of the castle and he saw those men again. And then he began to, to cry and he was afraid and all of a sudden he noticed that there was a big smile on their face. 
he looked up at them, he looked up at the stranger, and they walked right on in. And, and the little boy asked him, he said, what is this? How is it that, that we can walk right in? He looked down at him and he said, I'm the king's son. If you want to see the king, all you have to do is come with me. And he was so happy. He said, he looked up at the, at the king's son, he said, can I go home and get my parents and my brothers and my sisters and my friends and, and bring them here and let them see the king? And the son laughed. He said, that's the best idea I've ever heard. See, that's what we need to do, isn't it? That's how we want to meet the king. But if we're going to meet the king, we have to come through the sun. Why is that? Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's how we get to the king. How are we going to meet the king? Have we ever thought about that? Let's think about that for a moment. How are we going to meet the king? If you would, for just a moment, open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 19. 2 Samuel chapter 19. We're going to notice verses 11 through 15. And King David sent to Zadok and to Abathar the priest, saying, Speak unto the elders of Judah, saying, Why are ye last to bring the king back to his house? Seeing the speech of all Israel is come to the king, even to his house. Ye are my brethren. Ye are my bones and my flesh. Wherefore then are ye the last to bring back the king? And say ye, Amasa, art thou not of my bone and of my flesh? God do so to me, and more also, if thou be not captain of the hope of the host before me continually in the room of Joab. And he bowed the heart of all the men of Judah, even as the heart of one man, so that they sent this word unto the king, Return thou and all thy servants. So the king returned and came to Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king, to conduct the king over Jordan. Now what's the background to this? David had been, had been uh, ran off from his kingdom by his own son Absalom. He had been chased away. He had had the kingdom stolen right out from under him. And then as he was restored, everybody brought the king back except for Judah. And just as he said, you're bone of my bones, you're flesh. He was from the tribe of Judah. They were his kinsmen. Yet they were the last ones to come and meet the king. Well, as we look at this uh, context of this passage in 2 Samuel Chapters 19 and 20, there are several examples that we want to notice of people meeting the king, but they do not all meet him in the same way in our passage. How are we going to meet the king? Are we going to stand by him like the little boy with the son of the king, with our hand in his hand being ushered into the very throne room of the king, of God himself? Or are we going to be like some of these people? We're going to notice the first people that we're going to look at, they met the king and they were wanting. They were wanting. They were lacking something. Those who are destructive to the laws of God are going to be found wanting. They're not going to be seen in the way that we would like to be seen. In 2 Samuel 20, verse 1, we learn of a man named Sheba. Sheba had one thing in mind. The destruction of of David. 
the destruction of David. He wanted the kingdom ripped from his hands. He was he did not like David. Why? Well, we understand, we learn he's the son of Bichri, but he's also a Benjamite. He's a Benjamite. And that's the tribe from which Saul came. And so he wanted his loyalty to remain with Saul, and so he hated David. And when he had an opportunity to be hostile toward his interest and the interest of God, he took that opportunity because he did not want David to be king. We understand that even bad men in this life, they have opportunities, don't they? And it's very easy to do mischief, especially if that's what we have in mind. And this is exactly what Sheba had in mind. He had little to no desire to have any kind of a positive, constructive impact on anything. He didn't care about his reputation. All he wanted to do was destroy David. He wanted to bring about his end, and he didn't care how he did it, if he lived in a sinful way or not. And he didn't have the power to personally take David off the throne, but he did have some power. He had the power to whisper, to slander against the king. He had the power to attempt to destroy the works of God. And when we look a little closer at Sheba and we look at his genealogy, we learn something very interesting. Not only was he the son of Bichri, but he was also, it says, a man of Belial. In other words, he was a child of the devil. He had a physical family tree, but he also had spiritual parentage. And it was not what it needed to be. His father was the devil. And so when we look at someone that's going to stand before the king on the final judgment day, and we, we look at their situation, if they're wanting or if they are what God wants, if they've been destructive in this life, if they are a child of the devil. And listen, we can be children of the devil and not necessarily by specific choice. What I mean by that is we do not have to say, I want to be unfaithful, I want to be sinful. We may believe we're doing the right thing. We may believe that we're worshiping God in the right way. We may believe that, but we may not be, right? That's why we have to look into the Word of God. We may be a member of some kind of a man-made denomination. And you know what? If we're not a member of God's church, the church for which Christ died, we're in reality a son of Satan, right? Or a daughter of Satan. Not because we want to be evil. Maybe we don't understand. But we're still going to be held accountable, right? So we need to search that out. We don't want to stand before God wanting. It's true that all people in this world are going to face trials and temptations. We're going to make mistakes. You know, but there are others that intentionally do that. There there are others like this man Sheba who who are found to be, we might say, one of the chiefs in the armies of Satan. He wanted to bring destruction down upon God's people, and he did it through trying to destroy David. Now, he may not have in his mind said, I want to destroy Israel, but that's what he was doing. It's just like when Saul met our Lord on the way to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. He, He struck him with a great light. He fell down and he was talking to him. He said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest. We have no record that that he had ever been in the same area as Jesus while he was a young man prior to this. 
We have no record that... Now, we understand he was contemporary with Jesus, but we don't know that he had ever met the Lord prior to going to Damascus. So how in the world had he persecuted the Lord? Well, he was persecuting the church, right? He's being destructive. That's what Sheba was doing. That's why he was going to be found wanting, because he was destructive. Not only do people that cause insurrection amongst God's people, not only do they... Those who are found wanting, those who are destructive, not only are they filled with a, a spirit of wickedness, and, and they follow after a multitude of, that want to do evil, Exodus 23 verse 2. See, that's one of the things that do, they do, but they also encourage others to do that. So that's one of the problems, right? He had an opportunity to help his king and he didn't do it. He chose to go right along with the crowd in being destructive. The Holy Spirit, through the pen of Paul, has instructed us, God's people, how to deal with those types of brethren, right? Notice what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. Paul wrote, he said, Now command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. He also commanded in Romans 16, verse 17, he said, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause division and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. You know, we don't have to agree on everything, do we? We can have opinions on certain things. We may have a scruple about this or that. We don't have to agree on everything, but we have to agree on the doctrine, right? We have to agree on the doctrine. And so we have to, have to come together. And if we don't do that, in this world, if we can't come together in fellowship and in agreement on the doctrine of Jesus Christ, now there are things that, that uh, depending on our own conscience, that we may involve ourselves in or we may not. In and of itself, it wouldn't be wrong, but it may, it may bother my conscience and I'm not able to participate in that. That's fine. That's no problem. But the doctrine of Christ, we have to come together in agreement on that. Whether men see the wisdom in in carrying out God's uh, commandments or not, whether, whether they realize that He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, doesn't really matter. We're still going to stand in judgment. We're going to have to give an account because judgment is going to be administered. You know, there was another man that was found wanting in the eyes of God, wasn't there? Belshazzar. We remember him, the king of Babylon. He was making a mockery out of God. He went into the very temple of God, took out those holy utensils, those cups and, and things of that nature, and he filled them with wine and he used them in his drinking parties. How blasphemous was that? How uncaring was that? How disrespectful was this man? And he was found wanting in the eyes of God, wasn't he? God said and told him, Daniel 5 verse 27, Thou art weighed in the balance and are found wanting. Remember the finger that wrote upon the wall? Scared Belshazzar to death. His knees began to knock together. Daniel told him what that meant. See, he had been found wanting. That's not our desire. Will we be found wanting in the eyes of God? I hope not. But how do we avoid that? We have to be determined. We have to be determined not to be found wanting. When we come into the presence of our King, it ought to be a time of joy. John 14, verses 1 through 3, Let not your heart be troubled. 
You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. The Lord told those disciples prior to going back to, to heaven, if it were not so, He said, I would have told you. I'll go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I'll return again and gather you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. What a time of joy. That's how it ought to be, right? We, we want to be able to stand in the presence of God and look forward to that. That's what Paul said, wasn't it? Second Timothy chapter 4, he said, Not only am I going to receive a crown of righteousness, but to all those that love His appearing, those that look forward to His coming back. Have you ever had someone that was away on a trip and then they come back and you are looking forward to their return? I just experienced that. I was gone for 15 days and boy, I couldn't wait to get home. I told Nicole every single day, all I could think about was coming home, getting back to my family, getting back to this congregation. I said, you know when you feel that way? You need to retire from leaving the country. If you can't focus on your work properly while you're out of the country, it went well. We had, we had a good work, but see, my heart was here. Have you ever waited for someone to come? That's what Jesus is talking about in John 14. That's what Paul's talking about. You look forward to that return. I just can't wait. You know, we don't hear a lot in our prayers anymore about come quickly, do we? Praying to the Lord to come quickly. I understand that. I don't, I don't often say that myself. Because I'm thinking, you know, we need a little more time. There's so much work to be done. We want to... But you know, really, we ought to be looking forward to that return, right? Now, how do we, how do we put these ideas together? When we look in Hebrews 10, verse 31, the writer of Hebrews said, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. How do we put those two things together? If we're going to be determined not to be found wanting, and in, in, in the passage in John, we see that we're supposed to look forward to that return, and Christ is looking forward to coming and being with us again. But then we look at the writer of Hebrews, and he said, that's a fearful thing. Why don't, how, do, how do we put that together? How do we make that make sense? Well, it depends on how we're standing when He comes, right? If we're standing before Him, if we meet the King standing before Him wanting, we're going to receive destruction, right? That's what He's talking about. There are no contradictions in the Bible. If we stand before the King in the right relationship with Him, it'll be like John 14, 1 through 3. If we're standing before the King and we're found wanting, it'll be Hebrews 10, 31, right? That's not what we want. We don't want that. We want to stand before the God of the heaven and the earth. And we want to be found faithful. Now, there were some other people that we come across in our context. Some are going to be found wanting, but we... We run into a man named Zeba. Zeba. Zeba was a worried man when David returned. He was worried. He was worried because he was a hypocrite. He'd caused some problems, hadn't he? When David left Jerusalem because of the rebellion of Absalom, we're going to notice 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 4. Zeba went to him. Zeba went to David. He took him some food. He took him some necessities that he needed. But in Zeba's case, he did it because he had an ulterior motive. He wasn't doing it because it was the right thing to do. He, wasn't doing, he didn't do it because he loved David and he loved God. He took the opportunity while he had gained the confidence of King David to belittle and slander a man named Mephibosheth. He did it under the guise of being faithful. 
he told lies about Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. That's a, that's a name, isn't it? And because he did that, you know what he did? He ended up with all of his property. All the property that belonged to that good man. He did it under the guise of being a good man. He was a hypocrite. His representation of those, I believe, we can make the application today. And sadly enough, we have some people in the Lord's church itself like this who they they profess a godliness and a love and an alliance to God, but in reality, they're not for Him at all. They play the hypocrite, cloaking their efforts in religion. They They profess one thing and... And they do something else. Why is that not acceptable to God? Well, the reason is simple. Christians belong to God, right? Christians belong to God. 1 Corinthians uh, 6, 19-20. Notice what Paul told those brethren. He said, or he asked them a question. He said, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you? which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for you're bought. You're bought with a price, he says. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Christians have been saved for a reason, and God expects something out of us. He saved us to serve Him. Peter was quoting either, uh, or he was quoting from Leviticus 19 verse 2, when he made the statement in 1 Peter 1 verse 6, He said, Be ye holy, for I am holy. We are God's people. We are His body collectively. And in us dwells the Holy Spirit. I believe through the Word of God, Colossians 3.16. But we are to behave like we are His. That's why when someone plays the hypocrite, God doesn't like that. But He doesn't just dislike those who are hypocritical. They're not the only ones that are going to be worried. They're not the only ones. There are those who are hateful. The hateful will be worried. We're introduced to a man named Shammai. Shammai, he treated David in a hateful manner as David was leaving, fleeing for his life as he left Jerusalem. It's recorded, 2 Samuel 16, 5-7. And when King David came to Bahurim, Behold, thence came out a man of the family of the house of Saul. So you have this family connection again to Saul, whose name was Shammai, the son of Gerah. He came forth and he cursed still as he came. He came forward to David. He was cursing with his mouth and he threw stones. He cast stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on the right hand and on his left. And thus said Shammai when he cursed, Come out, come out, thou bloody man! And thou man of Belial. Can you believe he would talk to the king that way? He was worried on David's return because he had been hateful. Shammai suffered from that disease. Hatefulness, it'll eat you up. It'll, it'll burn you up inside. It'll rot you down. It'll make a hole inside of you, won't it? It came to him and it presented itself as a critical spirit. It had nothing good to say about David. David could do nothing right Sometimes that infiltrates the church, right? There was a couple one time went on a trip across country and they stopped at a little roadside restaurant for lunch and after they left, the lady forgot her glasses at the restaurant. 
And so she told her husband, she asked him, said, I forgot my glasses, can you turn around? And boy, he began to berate her and be critical of her and talk ugly to his wife. And, and it compounded and made things worse because he had to drive a good ways up the road to find a place to turn around. Well, he turned around and headed back to the restaurant in the hallway is talking about how stupid she was and how ignorant she was and, and she needed to pay more attention and understand what's going on around her and don't leave your glasses. Now, we've wasted all this time. So she pulls up or he pulls up to the restaurant and as she's getting out, he looked at her in a very gruff voice and said, well, as long as you're going in there, get my hat while you're in there. How critical he was of her. Yet he had done the same thing. That, that happens, doesn't it? That happens. Hatefulness will eat you up. We don't want that. We don't want that at all. That man, like Shammai, he had a, he had a critical spirit. That form of hatefulness can, can strike the strongest Christian if we're not careful. We have to be very careful about being critical of everyone that is around us. You know, we're all on the same side, aren't we? Christians are on the same side. We ought to love each other. And we do. And I'm so thankful for that here. I truly am. Because that's not always the case, even in the Lord's church. And we need to be thankful for that. See, a person that is critical, they look for a problem, right? They look for a problem. They look for an opportunity to be offended. Have you ever known anyone like that? You know, look, at the best we do, we're going to make mistakes in this life, and sometimes we don't feel good, and we may give an answer, and it may seem short to someone, when really we didn't mean anything by it. We don't know what's going on in their day. You know, my wife has taught me that. I, I go to a, to a store, go to Walmart or something, and the person checking out may, may not be very kind or courteous, and it's kind of offensive to me. I'm thinking, well, here I am spending my money. I'm coming in here to shop at your store, and you're not being very... Uh, hospitable towards me. You're not being very nice. And then, of course, uh, over the years, my wife has taught me, you know, you don't know what kind of day that person's had. They may not have intended that at all. And so I kind of, I felt like that in the past, I've kind of looked to be offended in those situations. Almost like I expected them to, to just cover me up with gladness that I'm shopping in their store. Well, what? that's crazy. That's crazy, isn't it? See, we, we don't need to look for problems. You know, David demonstrated his determination when he came back by sending faithful men to handle Shammai in the proper way. He knew that he had to be stopped or he would poison the rest of the people, right? That's one of the problems with hatefulness. It spreads like a cancer. He said in 2 Samuel 20 verse 6, Now shall Sheba the son of Bichri do us more harm than did Absalom? Take thou thy Lord's servants and pursue after him, lest he get him fenced cities and escape us. Hey, Shemai was sowing seeds of discord among the people, right? Slandering the king, talking ugly, being hateful. David said, we've got, to, we've got to stop that. Or he'll cause more damage than Absalom did. Absalom took the throne. But see, Shemai sowing seeds among the people. He said, go take care of that before he gets away from us. You know, Catherine Marshall was an author. She was the wife of a, of a well-known preacher, a denominational preacher, but she made a statement that agreed with, and she, she said something one time that I thought was, was good. She was considered uh, one, of the many, one of the more godlier women of the last century in her actions and in her behavior. Now, we're not going to agree with her on doctrinal issues, but we agree with her on moral issues, right? 
will agree with her on how to properly behave because she did that. She was a lady. But she noticed that she had a critical spirit. And one day she said, you know, I'm going to go on a critical fast. If I can't say something good, I'm not going to say something. So she wrote, she said this. For the first half of the day after she had done this, she said, I simply felt a void. Almost as if I'd been wiped out as a person. This was especially true at lunch, she said. She said, I listened to the others and kept silent. In our talkative family, no one seemed to notice. Bemused, I noticed that my comments were not missed. The federal government, the judicial system, and the institutional church could apparently get along fine without my penetrating observations. In short, stripped of being able to make any negative comments, she found she had nothing to say. Shemai had that had that nature, right? My granny used to tell me growing up, and I know that many of you have had uh, people in your life say this, if you can't say something good, just don't say anything at all, right? And she's one of the few people I've ever known in my life to actually practice that. And as I got older, I noticed that. That she wouldn't say something something bad about another person. I had a grandmother on the other side that was, she was all for saying something. She'd let you know in a hurry, right? Well, I, I used to, as I grew older, I'd try to get my gran, granny to say something about someone. I'd bring up someone that was just sorry as I'll get out. And I'd, I'd start talking about it. I'd try to get her to, to agree with me or to join him. And she just would not do it. And it kind of uh, became a, a contest for me to try to get that woman to say something that wasn't nice. You know, well, they had a good mother. Or they, you know, they, uh, they had a good family member. They did this. They, well, they work hard. They work awfully hard. They go to work every day. Yeah, but they beat their wife and they stay drunk all the time. What do you think about that? Well, they work hard. You know, couldn't get her to say anything. See, Shemai needed to do that. How are we going to meet the king? Are we going to, are we going to be found wanting in front of him? Are we going to stand there worried? Well, I hope not. I hope we're found working, right? We need to be found working because we're laborers together. We are a unit. We're a family. We're a team. It's an effort. You know, I was so happy when uh, Stevie came to services this morning, then Sister Nellie said, you know, Shannon, I've got her signed up for a Bible study through the mail. I said, really? Boy, that was fast. What a lesson, right? What a lesson. No, we're not wasting time. See, we're laborers together. That's what God wants. We have to be laborers and not for our own glory. So we don't want that. There was another man that we're going to talk about that met the king on his return to Jerusalem. His name was Barzillai. Barzillai, he met, he met David with gladness and happiness. You know, he was 80 years old when David came back. He was tickled to death that David came back. And he welcomed the king home. Now, we don't know much about Barzillai, but we do know in 2 Samuel 19, verse 32, it says that man was great. He was great. Great in the eyes of God. While gone... He was still faithful to David even though David was fleeing for his life. And he was instrumental, 2 Samuel 17, 27-29, in helping to bring David home. Barzillai, what a man that we don't hear a whole lot about, but he was a great man. That's a compliment, isn't it? You know, a good friend of ours, the couple that was here several weeks ago from Memphis that stayed with us, Phil and Elizabeth Carver, great people. We love them. They just adopted us here. Uh, like we're their children, and uh, 
adopted our, our girls in, and, and we love them, but Phil is always joking with me. He wants me to do his funeral. And he mentioned to me the other day, he said, when I die, I want you to do my funeral. I said, I, I won't be able to do that. I said, don't ask me to do that. I don't want to do that. He said, yeah, I don't want anyone else to do it but you. He said, because I want you to get up there and tell what a great joke teller I am, how funny I am. He's the worst joke teller this world's ever seen. I said, I can't get up there and tell a lie. I can't get up there and tell a lie, you know. But we work together. We work together. And we can do it. And we can have fellowship and fun. And we need to be like Barzillai. He's a great man. We can all be that way, right? We can all be like that. One of the biggest problems facing the church today, I believe, and I believe it's a very scriptural problem being stated, is lack of laborers. Matthew nine thirty seven through 38 says that, you know, the... The, the harvest truly is plenteous, but we're lacking laborers. See, we need laborers. And that's why it's so encouraging to me to see people who are willing to, to go out and do what they can do. You know, we can't all do the same things. You know, I've always considered myself a, about a one-talent man. You know, I wish I could lead singing. I love to sing, and I wish I could lead singing. And I am so thankful for, for the men that we have. Thankful for Wayman and, and Bobby willing to get up here and do that because let me tell you something, that's the hardest job in the building. And I wish I could do that, but you know, I can do something. I can do something. I can study with someone, or I can, I can take someone some supper. I can do something, right? Barzillai was a laborer. And if we're not laborers, we may be in the, in the lazy group, right? I came across some very interesting diseases as I was doing this study that uh, will impact the Christian life. Notice some of these. There's one called Sunday-itis. Sunday-itis, it's a condition that only affects an individual on Sunday. Uh, usually only during the morning hours and the evening hours. It'll show back up on Wednesday sometimes also. But when Monday comes around, we can go back to work. I read of one called black tongue. This has a greater effect on others than the one actually suffering from it. It's, uh, this is uh, characterized by idle gossip, right? causing a problem. Sufferer usually doesn't have very much good to say about other people. Then you have sore eyes, which will cause a person to be constantly looking for something that is wrong, but only in others. Spiritual malnutrition presents itself to one that just simply doesn't have time to study God's Word. Uh, maybe they have an overindulgence in worldly pleasures, but see, that's called spiritual malnutrition. Spiritual paralysis is one. It's a sad condition that uh, doesn't affect the individual in any aspect of their life other than their spiritual lives. They have no time for that. We can go hunting and fishing and we can go on vacation. I love to do all that stuff, right? I've got a, I've got a sister and, and you know, it, it hurts me to think about it. When they go on vacation, they truly go on vacation. They go on vacation from everything. They don't worry about hunting the church up or finding, you know, I get calls all the time from people I know in love, and they say, hey, I'm going to be in such such a place. Can you locate me a congregation of faithful people? I said, sure, I'll do my best. I'll try to do that. If there's one in the area, I'll find it. And I'll research that. I've got a sister who doesn't do that. They go on vacation, or at least that's how they used to do it. I hope that maybe they've changed. You know, it's sad. It's, but we don't want that. How are we going to meet the king when he returns? I think we need to think about that. Are we going to be laborers? Are we going to be lazy? We're going to be like that one talent man who buried his talent. Let's never bury our talents. Let's don't do that. Let's do all that we can do. Let's look forward to meeting the king. Boy, it's going to be a wonderful time, isn't it? Won't that be glorious? Can you imagine standing before the king of the world 
in a right relationship, having obeyed the gospel. I can't think of anything any greater. Being able to stand before Him and, and the world know and He'll know that we believed on Him because without faith it's impossible to please Him. Hebrews 11, verse 6. He will know and the world will know that we repented of past sins. We wanted to be in that situation standing before Him as workers for Him. Acts 17, verse 30. He'll know and the world will know that, that we confessed His beautiful name before men, before anyone that was, was able to be around us. And we not only did it in the initial confession like the Ethiopian eunuch did in Acts 8, verse 37, but we lived a life of confessing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Having gone down into the water to be baptized, to have our sins washed away, Acts twenty two sixteen. Having placed us inside of Christ, Galatians twenty six, Galatians three twenty six and twenty seven. He'll know that he will be looking forward and is looking forward to us standing there. And that won't it be glorious for all of us together to be ushered off to heaven, to meet him in the clouds and go be with him there forever. We can do that. We can do that if we follow that plan of salvation. If we do that, what He's asked us to do. And look, if we need to come back to Him and repent, let's do that as well. James said that the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Those who have sinned against God in some way, if it's privately, we go to God privately in prayer. We confess those sins to Him. We ask Him to forgive us and He'll do it. He loves us. He wants, He's looking to save us. We don't have to beg Him to save us. He wants to save us. If we've done something in a public way, though, we need to take care of that publicly, right? If we can't go to the people that are aware of it or whatever the situation is, we need to, go, we need to do it publicly. We need to confess on our sin, right? On it, say, I messed up, I made a mistake. I want forgiveness, I want to repent. Please pray with me. We'll do that. We'll pray with you and for you. And, and God cannot wait for you to come back into the fold. If you find yourself in either situation this evening, let that be known as we stand and as we sing.